Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a virtual trip to Africa to explore the genetic diversity in the birthplace of humanity, discover how researchers can read the cultural and historical stories written in the genome, and discuss the implications for the lack of diversity in our current genetic databases. Before we start, a quick plug for Ingenious, my recent five-part series on BBC Radio 4, produced by the brilliant Beth Sagar-Fenton. We looked at some of the stories and some of the science behind five of my favourite human genes. There's the ginger gene, the breast cancer gene, the milkshake gene, the Alzheimer's gene and the cyclops gene, also known as sonic hedgehog, clearly the best gene of all time, in my personal opinion. There's a link to the whole series on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or just search for Katani Ingenious and hopefully you should find them. Who are we and where did we come from? These are big questions and Sarah Tishkoff from the University of Pennsylvania has dedicated her career to researching the genetic story of humans in Africa, the birthplace of our species. I sat down with her for a chat during a break at a conference on human origins and evolution held at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge at the end of last year to find out what got her interested in exploring the genetics of African populations, how she carries out her research in an ethical and culturally sensitive way and what we can learn from these incredibly diverse human genomes. You know, first of all, we can only look at the diversity in modern populations, and those are the ones who survived until today, right? So there could have been populations that were there tens of thousands of years ago, and they didn't make it until today. And for that, we're going to have to rely on the paleobiological record and someday, we hope, ancient DNA from Africa. Right now, that's a challenge because the DNA degrades. It doesn't hold up well in that environment. But from looking at modern populations, we can make inferences about when did populations diverge from each other? Were there migration events between populations in the past? So trying to reconstruct the relationships of populations in Africa today. And what that's showing us is that Africa has the most genetic diversity compared to anywhere else in the world. That makes sense because it's the site of origin of modern humans and some relatively small number of humans left Africa somewhere between about 50 to 80,000 years ago. And so they brought with them just a subset of the diversity in Africa. But we've shown and others have shown that African populations were larger. Um, They've maintained more diversity. They've been larger for a long period of time. And they've been very subdivided. So there's a remarkable amount of diversity between African populations, not just within populations. And the other trend that we see is that most populations are admixed, meaning that they show ancestry from different populations. And that's because populations have migrated over long distances and they interbreed and then they may migrate somewhere else and (laughs) interbreed with the local population, they're producing a very complex history. As Adam Rutherford said, humans are mobile and horny. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So when you are trying to study the populations, the genetic diversity across Africa, there's a lot of people in Africa, a lot of different populations. How do you go about trying to gather that kind of genomic data? Because it's only relatively recently that we've actually been able to really get into studying whole genomes from a significant number of people at once? 
So um, what originally motivated me was uh, the linguistic data. That's what drove the questions. I was actually doing research in Johannesburg in South Africa for a short while and went to a meeting in Cape Town. And that meeting was on the history of the Khoisan people who speak with cliques in Southern Africa. And there were historians and geneticists, anthropologists, linguists, and I said, what would be the most interesting question? If I could answer one question, they said, you should go to Tanzania and study the Hadza and Sandawi, who are either current or until recently were hunter-gatherers. And they also speak with cliques, like the Southern African San populations. And they said, you know, try to find out how they're related to each other and to the Southern African populations. And that's what got me started, is I went to Tanzania and figured, well, if I'm going to study those groups, I better study the neighboring populations, because maybe they've interbred and it's going to be important. Well, that turned out to be a really good move. <laughs> so once we did that, we could start characterizing the extent of diversity that got me even more intrigued. So I decided, well, let's study other populations throughout Sub-Saharan Africa that sort of represent the most linguistically diverse populations or those that are of interest from an anthropological perspective or maybe have some interesting adaptive traits like Central African hunter-gatherers are commonly referred to as pygmies. They have a very short stature, and that's thought to be an adaptive trait. So I wanted to understand why are they short. I wanted to understand why are East African pastoralists tall, and how is it that they can drink milk? Whereas the ancestral state of all um, most humans <laughs> is that they can't drink milk. And so that's a, an, an adaptive trait that arose in Europeans, and we wanted to know did it also arise in African pastoralists. And indeed, it did. And we actually found several novel mutations that arose independently from Europeans. And we were able to estimate the age of those mutations. And they correspond remarkably well with the archaeological record for the origins of cattle domestication in Africa, and in particular, the introduction of cattle south of the Saharan Desert, which was after 5,000 years in East Africa. So it's a really cool example of gene culture coevolution. When you're gathering these samples, investigating and studying these populations, you've got to be a bit sensitive. I can imagine it doesn't do well to go marching in in a white coat going, give me a DNA, I'm going to take it away and, uh, and, and rummage through it. How do you go about doing this kind of research in a way that is sensitive? So the only reason that I am still doing this research after about 19 years is because we were really careful to do it in a sensitive way right from the start. That wasn't the easy way. At the time, there were a lot of people who weren't even getting permits. They weren't getting informed consent from people. They were sort of flying in and flying out. And we didn't want to do it that way. So the most important thing is that you have to have local collaborators. So we have people in each country who are trained as geneticists or as anthropologists, and they're key partners, so there has to be a partnership. And they're also going to be the ones who are going to make sure that you're doing this in a culturally sensitive way and uh, an ethical way. The other thing is, even though it's very time-consuming, we have to get permits at every country. And that means that we go through extensive ethical review at the level of the government. That is what takes the longest. So I would say usually between three to five years before we ever can start the field work. Wow. 
just setting up permits, going through ethical review. The longest record was nine years. (laughs) So we don't take shortcuts, but I'm glad that we didn't because now we're able to continue this research and we're able, we wanted to have long-term relationships. So we're able to go back to these same communities. So the other things we do, our team that does field work consists predominantly of Africans. When we're visiting a village, we always talk first to the village chief and we explain what we're doing and why we're doing it and what are the risks or the benefits or lack of benefits. If they agree, they'll often help us uh, with putting together a community discussion. We spend a lot of time answering questions and it, you know, we're often in places for long periods of time. This is not like we hop in, you know, one afternoon or morning and we just do this. It takes a long time. So yeah, we want to maintain long-term relationships. And one of the other things that's really important is to actually return results to the participants. So as much as possible, we've tried to do that. I actually just got an email a few days ago from a person from one of the groups that we studied in Kenya back in 2004 and 2006. And we had left our contact information. They wrote and said, you know, we'd like to get an update. And I said, sure, this is great. So that's also important to do. And um, you have to just respect local cultures and beliefs. And You can't be coercive, so we don't pay uh, money to people to participate. We might give a small thank you gift, but nothing that would be so much that they feel pressured to do this. And what's reassuring to me is that a lot of people choose not to. And so that's actually a good sign (laughs) that they're not being forced to do that. And when you are doing this research, engaging with communities, finding things out, how do they respond? What do they want to know? How do they take this kind of interesting work that you're doing? So it really depends on the population. But to me, what's interesting is that in many of the African populations that we've studied, they have a particular interest in history and ancestry. So that's not always the case. Native American populations or oceanic populations may have concerns about that. We did not find that. In fact, I did a uh, workshop with an anthropologist in Tsumkwe in Namibia, and there are a number of San populations in that area. And he organized this working group to explain to the population what the geneticists are doing and why they're doing it and what the results are. And it was great because they had translators and they would translate everything into the local language. And there was plenty of time to ask questions and things like that. But at the end, when we asked, what would you like? Like, what would you like out of this? And basically, they wanted essentially an ancestry test. They wanted, you know, like a 23andMe result. And we explained that that's a problem. We can't give individual results because another concern is paternity issues. And so it would be unethical at this point to give back uh, individual information. So we give information at the level of the population. I can see that being a problem. Um, One of the other things you mentioned that's interesting is not just about studying origins and diversity and the interrelationship between populations, but it's also about health. And I know that you've raised the issue recently in the scientific literature about the importance of having more diversity in the databases that we use to develop tests and treatments, particularly as we're moving now into a much more genetically informed area of medicine. Why is that so important? 
Well, it's important if uh, we want to be more inclusive in human genetics research and so that everybody may benefit from the research. I think that if we don't include ethnically diverse populations, it's just going to exasperate health inequalities. So we recently um, did a published a perspective where we looked at a um, genome-wide association study database, and that's where they're looking at genetic variants and their association with disease risk or sometimes normal variable traits. And we found that about 80% of the individuals included in these studies are European ancestry, about 10% East Asian ancestry, about 2% African ancestry, 1% Hispanic ancestry, and less than 1% everybody else in the world. There's a lot of other people in the world. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so we're just missing out on, we're, we, we don't know about the diversity that exists. And we know that there are differences in prevalence of certain diseases. And we know that health disparities can be caused certainly largely by socioeconomic factors and diet and behavioral factors. But in some cases, there could also be genetic risk factors. And so it's important to understand both the genetic and environmental risk factors for disease. And in order to do that, we have to study diverse populations. Now, the other issue is that nowadays, people are applying in the clinic something called a polygenic risk score or genetic risk score, where these are based so far on European studies because those are where they have the largest number of individuals, sometimes hundreds of thousands of individuals. And sometimes you need that to get statistical power. So when they find these associations, they can look, for example, let's say you're looking at heart disease, and they want to know um, how many variants do you have that are associated with risk for heart disease? And you sort of add them all up, and that gives you a genetic risk score. Now, people have shown that when you do that, based on European populations, it just doesn't work in other populations. And so we're actually potentially giving the wrong information to people, and certainly they're not going to benefit from that. So we have to better understand why these genetic risk scores don't translate. We have to understand if different populations might have different genetic risk factors, or it could be that they have the same genetic variants, but in a different environment, the trait is different, or the disease risk is different. It's interesting that we've moved in the past couple of decades from like the human genome and the original genome coming from a very small number of people to what I like to think of as the idea of the global genome is understanding the human genome, but all its different global variations. I mean, do you think that we'll get there or you think we really need to have like everybody? The whole world's population will only really understand it when we've got everyone. No, we don't have to have everybody, but we should have at least a decent representation. And that can be determined, again, it can be based on, sometimes it's based on what we know about linguistic variation or the history of populations. But if we're not even looking, we're not going to know what we're missing. So we just have to do a much better job at doing that. And that means, you know, starting at the level of funding organizations, they have to be able to put resources into this. There's also a need um, when doing this sort of research to build uh, capacity locally and train people locally. So that's also going to be very important. So ultimately, the goal would be that people are able to collect that data locally and analyze it locally. So there needs to be better resources for conducting the research and doing the training and the capacity building. And finally, now you're starting to gather many, many, many different gene sequences. You're starting to understand these populations. Are you surprised by the amount of diversity in there? 
Uh, well, I certainly was when I started my research. <laughs> so as a graduate student, this was a huge surprise because at the time, everybody was using some African populations that had been collected by Luca Cavalli-Sforza. He was at Stanford at the time. And they were from two Central African rainforest hunter-gatherer populations, often referred to as pygmies. And people were using these as representative Africans. It turns out they're not at all representative <laughs> of most Africans. And so when, we, when I initiated this work as a graduate student at Yale, it was a huge surprise to see how much variation there was amongst African populations. Because when we looked amongst Europeans, we didn't see that variation or amongst Asian populations, but every African group was so different from each other. So that's what really set me upon this journey. And um, we're always discovering new things that amaze me because there's also a lot of um, functionally important variation that may be geographically restricted or even unique to certain populations. So we're trying to now really zero in on genetic variants that play a role in both normal variable traits like skin color, for example, and height, and also disease risk, infectious disease resistance, for example. And then use functional genomics approaches to actually identify what are the actual causal variants. What's the variant that actually is impacting that trait? And as well as the information about life and health, understanding, I guess, our, our human story about where we came from and where we're going. Exactly. There's still so much more to learn. That's what makes this field so exciting. Sarah Tishkoff from the University of Pennsylvania. And you can find links to her research and her review highlighting the lack of diversity in genetic databases on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com or on Twitter at geneticsunzip. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. It does something happy to the algorithm and it helps more people discover the show. Alternatively, just share a link on social media or simply tell a friend. It's all good. Thanks very much. Another person I caught up with at the conference is Garrett Hellenthal. He's a statistical geneticist at University College London who's been collaborating with researchers working in Ethiopia, gathering information about the genes and the culture of various groups of people living there to see if there's any correlation between the two. One great thing about Ethiopia is the fact that it has an incredible amount of cultural, turns out genetic and also linguistic and all kinds of different types of diversity, different topographies. And so one of the main aims of the study was to see how genetics correlates with all of these different types of factors. So to see maybe if different cultural groups, different ethnic groups, have they keep their genetics to themselves or whether they're, they're mixing around? Exactly. And what sort of factors determine whether they mix around? Is it shared geography, shared language, similar languages, that type of thing? Or what sort of things even act as barriers to groups that are mixing? So tell me about some of the groups that you studied. What did you find? Who were you looking at? Well, so we're still kind of pouring through the results because there's so many things to look at. But um, we've already found a few interesting things. So in general, there is a trend where ethnic groups are on average more genetically similar to each other than they are to other ethnic groups. And so you do see a lot of this. Some of it falls pretty strongly along, along um, linguistic lines. So you've got 
what seems to be pretty ancient relatedness between particular different linguistic groups that nonetheless live in the same areas, but they're still quite different genetically. So if you don't speak the same language, you're not going to get together? Yes, sometimes. Although also I'd say that there's been a lot of evidence where that's not true, where you do see kind of these, these crossing across different language lines as well, where, where people from very different language groups genetically seem pretty similar. So that's languages. What are some of the other groupings that you see? Yeah, so one particular interesting one There's a group called the Ari who, amongst other groups in Ethiopia, they're kind of divided into these social hierarchies based on occupation. So it turns out that if you, in this particular ethnicity, if you work as a cultivator, a farmer, you enjoy a kind of higher social status than individuals who work as blacksmiths or potters. There's also other occupations, including weavers, which are also considered to be a bit higher status. So weavers and farmers are a bit higher. And then people who work as tanners, potters, or um, blacksmiths are kind of a bit set aside in the social hierarchy. Bottom of the ladder. Yeah, marginalized a bit, I guess. And so there's not much intermingling between them. So if you work as a cultivator, you may not want to be associated with the other groups or or spend time with them or dine in their homes, that type of thing. So when you look at the genetics of these different social groups, what do you find? Yeah, so first of all, kind of shockingly, is they're quite genetically different from one another. So if you look at individuals that are the same ethnic group, but work in these different occupations, so if one works as a farmer, another one works as a blacksmith, you can see very strong genetic differences between them to the extent that the people who work as farmers are actually much more genetically similar on average to other ethnic groups, which is typically not the case, what we see in most other ethnicities, but they're more similar to other ethnic groups than they are to other Ari who work in these different occupations. So hang on. You're saying that people who work in some occupations in this group are more similar to people who are completely outside the group. So what's gone on in history then? Are the farmers in this ethnic group, have they come from a different population? What can this tell us about the history? Yeah, so these caste-like occupational groups in Ethiopia have been studied for some time by anthropologists. And there's kind of sort of simplifying things. There's two major theories that anthropologists have proposed to explain the existence of these different groups. One is that, exactly as you say, they're quite anciently related. There's this idea that these blacksmiths and potters descend from these hunter-gatherer groups. So these would be the original, among the original inhabitants of Ethiopia that have been living in that area for a very long time. And then when you had the advent of farming in the Neolithic era, you had different farming communities coming in into the region. And it's believed by this particular theory that the farmers today descended from this other very distantly related group of farmers. And so they've been kind of at odds with each other and not really um, communicating for a very long time. Now, another theory, however, which is posited by Herbert Lewis in the 60s, is that actually they're all one group. You know, they're all Ari, and so maybe they've got very similar origins. But once one of the groups uh, with the advent of blacksmithing and these other technologies started to take those trades up, over time they just became these kind of isolation between the two groups within the community due to this occupational choice. Right, so the farmers, after a while, they're just like, well, we just don't hang out with the blacksmiths, we don't talk to them. Yeah, exactly. It was just totally a societal construction. Where it wasn't this you know, ancient relatedness, who are these new people. It was just like, oh, we've just decided that, yeah, we no longer are talking to people that work in this particular profession. So how are you using genetics to untangle what's actually happened in history? What did you find? Yeah, so... As I mentioned initially, when you look at these groups, they seem very genetically different if you use the standard techniques. And it's kind of crazy to the extent that you can, if I just have the DNA of somebody, I can predict exactly what their job is of one of these groups. You can easily figure out whether they're a a farmer, a potter, or or a blacksmith. But we did a slightly different analysis where if you take the same individuals and rather than kind of just 
blanket comparing their DNA to each other within these groups, you can take each of them and compare them to groups outside of Ethiopia. Now what this does is it sort of allows you to look a little bit back further in time. You kind of avoid what we call endogamy, so just recent intermarriaging amongst within the groups. So if you've got that one of the groups, if you're a potter, you're only intermixing and intermarrying with other potters, which is consistent with this idea that they've been marginalized and nobody else is mixing with them, then you'll get these kind of genetic differences over time quite rapidly, possibly. And so what we did is we just tried to get rid of those effects a bit by instead taking our individuals, comparing them to non-Ethiopians, and seeing how do they relate to non-Ethiopians? Do they relate in the same way? If so, that kind of suggests that maybe actually they do share similar ancestral origins. And what did you find? Yeah, so when we did this, kind of miraculously, these differences completely disappeared. So this idea that you had these groups that were completely genetically different. So for example, the farmers look more similar to other ethnic groups than they did to other Ari who work as blacksmiths. We instead found that when you compare them to non-Ethiopians, they're most similar to each other than they are to any other ethnic group within Ethiopia. So like you completely get rid of these kind of recent isolation effects. So that basically supports that second idea that they're basically the same people and then somewhere along the lines they've just decided that they're not talking to each other. Exactly, yeah. So we think that the most likely explanation kind of by far based on that, the one that's the most consistent with the data is exactly that, that they share the same recent origins and that kind of makes sense, that they're the same ethnic identity. But only recently, once one of them picked up these different occupations, just over time, society's put pressure on these different jobs and decided that uh, now they're going to stop intermixing. And that's led to genetic differences that we can observe today. So they're, they're not interbreeding, not intermingling, but I do want to know, do you see any kind of Romeo and Juliet events? Do you see people that have crossed those social lines for love? Yeah, as you'd expect, there's always exceptions in these things. So yeah, we, I think so in the original collection, we had about uh, 10 individuals from each of the farmers and the blacksmiths. And in one or two of those individuals, there's kind of clear evidence that one of them was about 50-50 each genetically, it seems like. So it seems like a first-generation offspring. So they had a parent from each. Oh. Uh, yep. <laughs> Crossing the social yes. line. And another one that's probably about had a grandparent in one of the different groups or so. So yeah, so that's like, you know, two out of 20 or so. You, you see evidence of this crossing these different lines. Yeah. So these techniques that you've used, where are you trying to look next to untangle these relationships between genetics, culture, diversity? Well, so we're still looking at other groups in Ethiopia as well. So we've got data from, I mentioned the Ari. There's another group called the Walaita who also practice this um, social stratification by occupation. And we're seeing similar things. So you see a, a bit of, again, some degree of intermixing between the different occupations, but you can still kind of genetically tell them apart. And so we're looking at other instances in Ethiopia, but also I'm quite interested in studying other parts of Africa as well. So looking at Nigeria, Cameroon, and other places where there's tons of ethnic diversity, tons of linguistic diversity, lots of different topographies, and trying to, to see what are the factors that are really encouraging, promoting, or inhibiting gene flow between groups. It feels like this is another layer on top of all the other work that historians, anthropologists, archaeologists do to, to really unpick this human story of, of who we are and how we all came to be here where we are. Yeah, the, the idea is that... Um, we're hoping that genetics can be used as another tool in these types of studies. And it's actually quite gratifying with the, uh, the work on the RE. We, we published something on this in 2015, and, and Herbert Lewis, who I mentioned, he was uh, the one who proposed this idea of marginalization, that there's just this recent isolation between these different occupational groups. And about a year after we published, he said he randomly came across our paper, and uh, he reached out via email. 
at first he said, you know, you didn't quite cite me properly. And we're like, okay, sorry, <laughs> which is which is very fair enough. I felt quite embarrassed about that. But then he he was very gracious and said uh, he was he was very happy that we we found something that kind of provided additional evidence to his theory that he'd been proposing for so long. Garrett Helenthal from UCL. The Ari people aren't the only African population whose culture and history is written in their genes. Garrett's PhD student, Lucy Van Dorp, is a genetic archaeologist who's comparing DNA from many people, ancient and modern, to figure out when certain gene variations and changes appeared in different populations and to piece together a historical story about who was doing what, when and with whom. This kind of evidence is increasingly being used to support or refute other sources like written records or archaeological sites. And when that kind of stuff isn't easy to establish or doesn't exist, this immortal DNA story becomes even more valuable. Yes, if we look at the genome, it really contains a legacy of past interactions, and that might be interactions of us as a species or any other species we happen to have genomes from. And this is because obviously every time we mix, we share our DNA, we pass on some of that genome. And this means if we're able to use statistical methods to figure out which bits of DNA come from different people or from different populations, we can start to make inferences about how people might be more closely related to each other for various historical reasons, but also track the legacy of large-scale migration events and population replacement events. So a population replacement event would be a case where you have, for example, large-scale migration and the existing population is wiped out. So one of the really exciting things I think about DNA is that it's really an unbiased account of interactions. So a lot of our understanding of the past is based on the fields of linguistics, history, archaeology and anthropology. But if we look at DNA, we have something completely independent. We don't need to rely on a written record. Instead, we can just ask questions of the genome and say, where do we see interactions through time? And then in some cases, we can link those to known historical events. But in others, we get this tantalising kind of glimpse at what may have happened in the past about actually having to know very much about history itself. One interesting example Lucy's been researching is the story of the Cuba Kingdom, a sophisticated society that flourished hundreds of years ago in what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. This kingdom was formed in about 1625 by an individual who moved to the area and joined a set of different ethnic groups that existed there into what became known as the Cuba Kingdom and really became what we now consider a centralised state. And the exciting thing about this kingdom is that it was really innovative. So it was a hub of trade. It had many of the traits that we associate with our own societies today. So the concept of a capital city, trial by jury, a public police force, public goods provision. But all of these things arose independent of any Western input. And so one question is if we take the DNA of people whose ancestors were part of the Cooper kingdom or who today define themselves as Cooper, as the kingdom does still exist in some capacity... We compare it to DNA of neighbouring groups. Do we see any genetic legacy of this oral tradition or this historical event? And in particular, can we learn something about how people who were part of the kingdom were interacting back in the 17th century? And it turns out if we take the DNA of Cuba people today and we compare it to, say, 26 other ethnic groups sampled within the region, we see something a little bit different. 
So looking at the Kuba genomes, we see that there's much more genetic diversity. So it really suggests that the Kuba people have a history of mixing extensively. And by that, I mean we can identify lots of chunks within their genome that show evidence of migration and movement from other neighbouring populations. And this is something we just don't see in what are called the non-Kuba. This tells us two things. It tells us that this kingdom wasn't a kingdom of isolation. It was actually encouraging the movement of people. You can think of it as kind of a federal kingdom in that sense, that people were moving, they were mixing. The kingdom was encouraging social mobility and exchange of DNA, of of marriage of people. But also we can precisely date when we think those events were happening. And we find using just the genome and an independent line of evidence that this dating fits very nicely when the kingdom was at its peak in the 17th and 18th century. The Kuba Kingdom was so advanced that European colonisers arriving there couldn't believe that it was purely the work of Africans. But as Lucy has discovered, the DNA story reveals that the kingdom accumulated its intellectual and financial wealth by acting as a kind of metropolitan mixing pot for the surrounding area. Our understanding of the Kuba Kingdom is not that strong. It's well known within the Democratic Republic of Congo. But really in terms of our own documentation, that's been something which has come much more recently through ethnographic and anthropological studies. But actually having a kind of independent line of information to resolve some of the questions about the kingdom, did it encourage trade? Did it move people? Is there a genetic legacy? And that's something we can get at with genomes. And one thing that I think is quite nice in this example is that we could see evidence of these events in the Kuba genomes, which means that if we were in a situation where we knew nothing about the kingdom, we might question why this group looks so diverse. And this really suggests the possibility that we can start to use genetic information to infer how people have interacted, in this case, the legacy of a socio-political system through time and even when no written records exist. I think it's important to couple this with some extra information, for example, from archaeology and anthropology, but that will be in a position to actually start to infer some of the nature or characteristics of historical events which have left a genetic legacy, looking at the genomes almost in isolation. That's genetic archaeologist Lucy Van Dorp from UCL. And if you want to hear another story about how human culture has shaped our genes, take a listen to the episode in my recent Ingenious series on BBC Radio 4 about the milkshake gene and the evolution of dairy farming. And finally, it's time for a quick look at what's in the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the Journal of the Genetic Society. Host James Bergen's been talking to Professor Michael Lynch from Arizona State University about a potential way to combat COVID-19 by forcing the coronavirus behind the pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, into extinction through a process called mutational meltdown. Now, apologies for the slight technical issues in this clip. As with everything right now, we'll just blame it on COVID. These RNA viruses have very, very high mutation rates. There's already been dozens, I guess, uh, probably hundreds of genomes of these bugs already sequenced. And so this is a situation which you're seeing evolution in action on a time scale of you know, only a few months. That's one of the reasons I think it's useful to put the whole process in a, a population genetic context. And uh, the mutational meltdown is you know, one aspect of population genetics that, that I think has real uh, practical implications, even though in this case, we're talking about driving something to extinction, whereas the, the concept was originally developed as a sort of guide to minimizing the risk of extinction. Yeah, I think this is the first time in the podcast we've ever talked about trying to drive something extinct. Yeah. <laughs> you can find the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. 
Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Next time we'll be exploring some more stories from the history of genetics. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.